Book Three, Part Two of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso, translated by Brooks Moore. Book Three, Part Two. Hapless Actaeon's end in various ways was now regarded. Some deplored his doom, but others praised Diana's chastity, and all gave many reasons. But the spouse of Jove, alone remaining silent, gave nor praise nor blame. Whenever calamity befell the race of Cadmus, she rejoiced in secret, for she visited her rage on all Europa's kindred. Now a fresh occasion had been added to her grief, and wild with jealousy of Semele, her tongue as ever ready to her rage, lets loose a torrent of abuse. Away! Away with words! Why should I speak of it? Let me attack her! Let me spoil that jade! Am I not Juno, the supreme of heaven, queen of the flashing scepter? Am I not sister and wife of Jove omnipotent? She even wishes to be known by him, a mother of a deity, a joy almost denied to me. Great confidence has she in her great beauty. Nevertheless, I shall so weave the web the bolt of Jove would fail to save her. Let the gods deny that I am Saturn's daughter, if her shady descend not stricken to the Stygian wave. She rose up quickly from her shining throne, and hidden in a cloud of fiery hue descended to the home of Semele, and while encompassed by the cloud, transformed her whole appearance as to counterfeit old Barrow, an Epidorian nurse who tended Semele. Her tresses changed to grey, her smooth skin wrinkled, and her step grown feeble as she moved with trembling limbs. Her voice was quavering as an ancient dame's, as Juno, thus disguised, began to talk to Semele. When presently the name of Jove was mentioned, artful Juno thus, doubtful that Jupiter could be her love. When Jove appears to pledge his love to you, implore him to assume his majesty and all his glory, even as he does in presence of his stately Juno. Yeah, implore him to caress you as a god. With artful words as these, the goddess worked upon the trusting mind of Semele, daughter of Cadmus, till she begged of Jove a boon that only hastened her sad death. For Jove, not knowing her design, replied, Whatever thy wish, it shall not be denied, and that thy heart shall suffer no distrust, I pledge me by that deity, the waves of the deep Stygian lake, oath of the gods. All overjoyed at her misfortune, proud that she prevailed, and pleased that she secured of him a promise that could only cause her own disaster, Semele addressed almighty Jove, Come unto me in all the splendor of thy glory, as thy might is shown to Juno, goddess of the skies. Fain would he stifle her disastrous tongue. Before he knew her quest the words were said, and knowing that his greatest oath was pledged, he sadly mounted to the lofty skies, and by his potent nod assembled there the deep clouds, and the rain began to pour and thunderbolts resounded. 
but he strove to mitigate his power, and armed him not with flames overwhelming as had put to flight his hundred-handed foe, Typhaeus, flames too dreadful. Other thunderbolts he took, forged by the cyclops of a milder heat, with which insignia of his majesty, sad and reluctant, he appeared to her. Her mortal form could not endure the shock, and she was burned to ashes in his sight. An unformed babe was rescued from her side, and nurtured in the thigh of Jupiter, completed nature's time until his birth. Ino, his aunt, in secret nursed the boy and cradled him, and him Nicean nymphs concealed in caves and fed with needful milk. While these events, according to the laws of destiny, occurred, and while the child, the twice-born Bacchus, in his cradle lay, tis told that Jupiter, a careless hour, indulged too freely in the nectar cup, and having laid aside all weighty cares, jested with Juno as she idled by. Freely, the god began, who doubts the truth. The female's pleasure is a great delight, much greater than the pleasure of a male. Juno denied it, wherefore it was agreed to ask Tiresias to declare the truth, than whom none knew both male and female joys, for wandering in a green wood he had seen two serpents coupling, and he took his staff and sharply struck them till they broke and fled. Tis marvellous that instant he became a woman from a man, and so remained while seven autumns passed. When eight were told, again he saw them in their former plight, and thus he spoke, since such a power was wrought by one stroke of a staff, my sex was changed. Again I strike. And even as he struck the same two snakes, his former sex returned. His manhood was restored. As both agreed to choose him umpire of the sportive strife, he gave decision in support of Jove. From this the disappointment Juno felt surpassed all reason, and enraged decreed eternal night should seal Tiresias' eyes. Immortal deities may never turn decrees and deeds of other gods to naught, but Jove, to recompense his loss of sight, endowed him with the gift of prophecy. Tiresias' fame of prophecy was spread through all the cities of Ionia, for his unerring answers unto all who listened to his words. And first of those that hearkened to his faithful prophecies, a lovely nymph named Lyriope came with her dear son, who then fifteen might seem a man or boy, he who was born to her upon the green merge of Cephissus' stream, that mighty river-god whom she declared the father of her boy. She questioned him, imploring him to tell her if her son, unequaled for his beauty, whom she called Narcissus, might attain a ripe old age, to which the blind seer answered in these words, If he but fail to recognize himself, a long life he may have beneath the sun. So, frivolous the prophet's words appeared, and yet the event, the manner of his death, the strange delusion of his frenzied love, confirmed it. Three times five years so were passed, another five years, and the lad might seem a young man or a boy, and many a youth and many a damsel sought to gain his love but such his mood and spirit and his pride none gained his favor. Once a noisy nymph, who never held her tongue when others spoke, who never spoke till others had begun, 
mocking echo, spied him as he drove, in his delusive nets, some timid stags. For echo was a nymph in olden time, and more than vapid sound possessed the form. And she was then deprived the use of speech, except to babble and repeat the words once spoken over and over. Juno confused her silly tongue, because she often held that glorious goddess with her endless tales, till many a hapless nymph from Jove's embrace had made escape adown a mountain. But for this the goddess might have caught them. Thus the glorious Juno, when she knew her guile, your tongue so freely wagged at my expense shall be of little use, your endless voice much shorter than your tongue. At once the nymph was stricken as the goddess had decreed, and ever since she only mocks the sounds of others' voices, or perchance returns their final words. One day, when she observed Narcissus wandering in the pathless woods, she loved him, and she followed him with soft and stealthy tread. The more she followed him, the hotter did she burn, as when the flame flares upward from the sulphur on the torch. Oh, how she longed to make her passion known, to plead in soft entreaty, to implore his love. But now, till others have begun, a mute of nature she must be. She cannot choose but wait the moment when his voice may give to her an answer. Presently, the youth, by chance divided from his trusted friends, cries loudly, Who is here? An echo. Here, replies. Amazed, he casts his eyes around and calls with louder voice, Come here! Come here! She calls the youth who calls. He turns to see who calls him, and beholding not, exclaims, Avoid me not! Avoid me not! returns. He tries again, again, and is deceived by this alternate voice, and calls aloud, Oh, let us come together! Echo cries, Oh, let us come together! Never sound seems sweeter to the nymph, and from the woods she hastens in accordance with her words, and strives to wind her arms around his neck. He flies from her, and as he leaves her, says, Take off your hand. You shall not fold your arms around me. Better death than such a one should ever caress me. Not she answers, save, Caress me. Thus rejected she lies hid in the deep woods, hiding her blushing face with the green leaves, and ever after lives concealed in lonely caverns in the hills. But her great love increases with neglect, her miserable body wastes away, wakeful with sorrows. Leanness shrivels up her skin, and all her lovely features melt, as if dissolved upon the wafting winds. Nothing remains except her bones and voice. Her voice continues in the wilderness. Her bones have turned to stone. She lies concealed in the wild woods, nor is she ever seen on lonely mountain range, for though we hear her calling in the hills, Tis but a voice, a voice that lives, that lives among the hills. Thus he deceived the nymph and many more, sprung from the mountains or the sparkling waves, and thus he slighted many an amorous youth, and therefore some one whom he once despised, lifting his hands to heaven, implored the gods, If he should love, deny him what he loves. And as the prayer was uttered, was heard by Nemesis, 
who granted her assent. There was a fountain, silver-clear and bright, which neither shepherds nor the wild she-goats that ranged the hills, nor any cattle's mouth had touched. Its waters were unsullied, birds disturbed it not, nor animals nor boughs that fall so often from the trees. Around sweet grasses, nourished by the stream, grew. Trees that shaded from the sun let balmy airs temper its waters. Here Narcissus, tired of hunting in the heated noon, lay down, attracted by the peaceful solitudes and by the glassy spring. There, as he stooped to quench his thirst, another thirst increased. While he is drinking, he beholds himself reflected in the mirrored pool, and loves. Loves an imagined body, which contains no substance, for he deems the mirrored shade a thing of life to love. He cannot move, for so he marvels at himself, and lies with countenance unchanged, as if indeed a statue carved on parian marble. Long, supine upon the bank, his gaze is fixed on his own eyes, twin stars. His fingers, shaped as Bacchus might desire, his flowing hair, as glorious as Apollo's, and his cheeks youthful and smooth, his ivory neck, his mouth dreaming in sweetness, his complexion fair and blushing as the rose in snowdrift white, all that is lovely, in himself he loves, and in his witless way he wants himself. He who approves is equally approved, he seeks, is sought, he burns, and he's burnt and how he kisses the deceitful fount, and how he thrusts his arms to catch the nag that's pictured in the middle of the stream. Yet never may he wreathe his arms around that image of himself. He knows not what he there beholds, but what he sees inflames his longing, and the error that deceives allures his eyes. But why, O oh foolish boy, so vainly catching at this flitting form, the cheat that you are seeking has no place. Avert your gaze, and you will lose your love, for this that holds your eyes is nothing save the image of yourself reflected back to you. It comes and waits with you. It has no life. It will depart if you only go. Nor food nor rest can draw him thence, outstretched upon the overshadowed green his eyes fixed on the mirrored image never may know their longing satisfied, and by their sight he is himself undone. Raising himself a moment, he extends his arms around, and beckoning to the murmuring forest, O oh, ye old wood, was ever man in love more fatally than I? Your silent paths have sheltered many a one whose love was told, and ye have heard their voices. Ages vast have rolled away since your forgotten birth. But who is he through all those weary years that ever pined away as I? Alas, this fatal image wins my love as I behold it. But I cannot press my arms around the form I see, the form that gives me joy. What strange mistake has intervened betwixt us and our love? It grieves me more than neither lands nor seas nor mountains. No, nor walls with closed gates deny our loves, but only a little water keeps as far asunder. Surely he desires my love and my embraces, for as oft I strive to kiss him, bending to the limpid stream my lips, 
So often does he hold his face fondly to me, and vainly struggles up. It seems that I could touch him. It is a strange delusion that is keeping us apart. Whoever thou art, come up, deceive me not. Oh, whither when I fain pursue art thou? Ah, surely I am young and fair. The nymphs have loved me, and when I behold thy smiles I cannot tell thee what sweet hopes arise. When I extend my loving arms to thee, thine also are extended me. Thy smiles return my own. When I was weeping, I have seen thy tears, and every sign I make thou cost return. And often thy sweet lips have seemed to move, that peradventure words which I have never heard thou hast returned. No more my shade deceives me, I perceive. Tis I in thee, I love myself. The flame arises in my breast and burns my heart. What shall I do? Shall I at once implore? Or should I linger till my love is sought? What is it I implore? The thing that I desire is mine. Abundance makes me poor. Oh, I am tortured by a strange desire, unknown to me before. For I would fain put off this mortal form, which only means I wish the object of my love away. Grief saps my strength, the sands of life are run, and in my early youth am I cut off. But death is not my bane, it ends my woe. I would not death for this that is my love, as two united in a single soul would die as one. He spoke, and crazed with love returned to view the same face in the pool, and as he grieved his tears disturbed the stream, and ripples on the surface, glassy clear, defaced his mirrored form. And thus the youth, when he beheld that lovely shadow go, Ah, whither cost thou fly? Oh, I entreat thee, leave me not! Alas, thou cruel boy, thus to forsake thy lover! Stay with me, that I may see thy lovely form, for though I may not touch thee, I shall feed my eyes and soothe my wretched pains. And while he spoke, he rent his garment from the upper edge, and beating on his naked breast, all white as marble, every stroke produced a tint as lovely as the apple streaked with red, whereas the glowing grape, when purple bloom, touches the ripening clusters. When as glass again the rippling water smoothed, and when such beauty in the stream the youth observed, no more could he endure. As in the flame the yellow walks, or as the hoar-frost melts in early morning neath the genial sun, so did he pine away, by love consumed, and slowly wasted by a hidden flame. No vermil bloom now mingled in the white of his complexion fair. No strength has he, no vigor, nor the comeliness that wrought for love so long. Alas, that handsome form, by echo fondly loved, may please no more. But when she saw him in his hapless plight, though angry at his scorn, she only grieved. As often as the lovelorn boy complained, Alas! Alas! her echoing voice returned. And as he struck his hands against his arms, she ever answered with her echoing sounds. And as he gazed upon the mirrored pool, he said at last, Ah, youth beloved in vain! In vain, in vain, the spot returned his words. And when he breathed the sad farewell, Farewell, sighed Echo too. 
he laid his wearied head and rested on the virgin grass and those bright eyes which had so loved to gaze entranced on their own master's beauty sad night closed and now although among the nether shades his sad sprite roams he ever loves to gaze on his reflection in the stygian wave his naiad sisters mourned and having clipped their shining tresses laid them on his corpse and all the dryads mourned and echo made lament anew and these would have upraised his funeral pyre and waved the flaming torch and made his bier but as they turned their eyes where he had been alas he was not there and in his body's place a sweet flower grew golden and white the white around the gold end of book three part two